You're listening to the Veritas Podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. We're helping move the hearts and minds of more college students to believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, find us on social media at Veritas Como. We hope you're encouraged by this message. Hey, so in uh, 2010, Chicago Bears head football coach, at least then, uh, Lovey Smith, he had a challenge for his incoming rookie class. And that challenge was this. He said, make us put you on the team. Make us coaches, that's who he's talking about, make us coaches put you on the team. See, for NFL rookies, half the battle is just making the team. Uh, NFL teams, they, they start with 80 players on the roster at training camp. Those 80 players quickly becomes 65 after a few weeks. Players are cut. And then a few weeks later, right before the season starts, that number 65, it goes to 53, which is the league requirement for the number of players on an NFL team. And so to put it into perspective, in 2010, of the 19 rookies who were invited to the Chicago Bears training camp, only seven or so made the team. Only seven or so rookies made the team. Now, not exactly great odds, right? And of course, as the coach, Lovey Smith, he, he knows this. He knows that it's unlikely that most of these rookies are going to make the team. And so he, he gets in their face and he challenges them and he says, make us put you on the team. In other words, his message to these players is, is to play so well that we coaches, we can't imagine cutting you from the team. Take the decision out of our hands. Let your performance speak for itself. Make us, make us put you on the team. Now, that's a great idea, I suppose, as a head football coach, talking to players who may or may not make the team. But here's the deal. It's a terrible idea when it comes to God. It's a terrible idea when it comes to God, and yet most religions and many people throughout the world think in one way or another that Lovey Smith's challenge to NFL rookies is the same kind of challenge that God gives to us. We envision God saying the same thing, make me put you on the team. Make me put you on the team. And if God is saying, make me put you on the team, then the question becomes how? And we start to fill that out with, with what? By, by living such a good life. Make me put you on the team by, by, by being such a great person, by doing so many great things that, that I, God, I can't imagine rejecting you. I can't imagine rejecting you. It's up to you. Take the decision out of my hands. That's what many people think that God thinks. Now, here's a question. Is that what you think? Is that what you think when you think about God? There's a theologian, he's long gone now, A.W. Tozer, he said this, he said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so that's our question, is that how we think? Is Lovey Smith, is his message to, to NFL rookies, is that how we think about God? Make me, make us put you on the team. That all God really wants for me, all God really wants for you, for all of us, is for us to justify our place on his team. And how do we justify ourselves? Be a better person. Clean ourselves up. Try harder. Is that what you think God thinks about you? Is that what you think? Do you think that God just wants you to be a better person? 
Do you think that, that God just wants you to clean yourself up? Do you think that God is just asking you to try harder? Is that what you think God wants of you? Now, maybe it is. Like I said, I think there's a lot of confusion out there. A lot of people throughout the world, probably some people in this room, certainly a lot of college students in Columbia think that this is exactly what God is like. But you see, the counterintuitive good news, the truth of the Bible, why Christians should, of all people, why Christians should have so much joy. We just sang it. There is nothing, nothing that you and I can do to earn a spot on the team with God. Nothing we do earns us a spot on the team. Now, why is that? Well, of course, because Jesus has already done it. Jesus has already done it on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. He came, he was born, became a man. He lived a perfect life. He died a death he didn't deserve. He was murdered on a cross because of sin. He rose from the grave, an event that actually happened. Three days after he was killed, he walked out of a tomb with a body he ascended to heaven, and one day the great hope of the Bible is what? That he's going to come back physically, bodily. And those of us who put our faith in him will live with him forever. And now here's the thing. We didn't do anything to earn that. That has nothing to do with us, does it? What Jesus had to do, or what Jesus did, didn't have anything to do with us. He did it. It was free for us. It cost him everything. Free for you and me, it cost him everything. This is how Paul says it in Galatians chapter 2, picking up in verse 15. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because the, by the works of the law, Paul says, no one will be justified. Now, I know when we read verses like that, there's some churchy words, justified by faith, by the works of the law, these kinds of things. I know that they're churchy, but, but I want to pause here for a bit because what Paul is saying in these verses is absolutely crucial. It's central to what it means to be a Christian. It's central to following Jesus. You see, when, when he says we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, what he's saying is that our faith in what Jesus has done is what justifies us. Our faith in what Jesus has done, not what you've done, not what I've done, not what I will do. No, our faith in what Jesus has done is what justifies us. Now, what does that word justify mean? Right? Maybe you've heard it, maybe you don't, don't know. But in context, what justify means, it means to be in right standing with God, to be right, to be made right with God, to be in right relationship with God. And in the Bible, when the word justified is used, it's often a legal term. And so, so what Paul is saying, he's saying that despite the fact that we are guilty because of sin, that's the hard truth of the Bible, that every single one of us is guilty because of a rebellion against God, because of our rebellion against God. What Paul's saying, though, is that despite the fact that you and I are guilty because of sin, God declares for those of us, for anyone who puts their faith in him, God declares not guilty. God accepts us despite our sin. We become righteous, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, not because of what we will do, but because of what Jesus has done. So here's a, here's a different way of saying it. You've been around the crossing, maybe you've heard this before. But, but think about it like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
Jesus plus nothing, not something, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. See, there is nothing that you can do to add to what Jesus has already done for you. There is nothing that you and I can add to what Jesus has already done for us. And what Jesus has already done for us is everything that we could possibly need. There is nothing that you can do to add to what Jesus has done for you. And what Jesus has done for you is, what, is everything that you could possibly need. See, we're in this series right now. We've been walking through the, Paul's letter to the Galatians. The Galatians were, were a group of Christians in the Roman province of Galatia. We're, we're, so we're looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians in the New Testament. And, and this, this is the message. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the heart of every single thing that Paul is saying to these Christians that we are justified by faith in Jesus. We are made right with God on the basis of what Jesus has already done. Now, some of us, we've heard that a lot, right? But I, but I want us to sit with that, sit with that for a second. We are justified on the basis, we are made right with God on the basis of what Jesus has done, not what we do. It's not your performance. It's not your trying. It's not your cleaning yourself up. No, it's what Jesus has done on your behalf. That's unbelievably good news. If we stop to think about it, if we really believe it, if we really understand it. And here's the thing, the Galatians, they knew that. I mean, here comes Paul and he's, he, he's preaching this message. He's teaching them these things. They're, they're hearing the gospel. They're hearing the good news and, and they're all in. Yeah, I want that, at least at first. But something changed. Something changes for them. Somewhere along the line, we've been talking about this group of, of opponents, so to speak, of, of Paul. They're, they're preaching a rival message. They're teaching a rival gospel. And, and somewhere along the lines, that good news, it gets distorted. It gets perverted. It gets flipped upside down. And so what these early Christians start doing, this is the context now, what they, what they start doing is they, they start replacing that nothing in that equation, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. They start replacing that nothing with something. And so what, what began as Jesus plus nothing has turned into Jesus plus something. And because of that, this is what Paul says. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, now catch what Paul's doing here, right? Like, like these are people that Paul loves. These are people that Paul is, is, is preaching to. He's, he's pastoring. He's writing a letter to them. He's, he's teaching them about, he loves them, and yet he calls them fools. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, fools, who has bewitched you? Now, here's the thing. That word bewitched, this is the only time in the entire New Testament, the only time the, the last third of the Bible that that word is used. And Paul uses it to talk to a group of Christians that he loved dearly. Who has bewitched you? You see, these early Christians, they had been tricked. They had been fooled into to, to believing something untrue. As if a spell had been cast over them, preventing them from seeing what was so blatantly obvious, that, that Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He was clearly portrayed as crucified over their very eyes. This word clearly, it can also be translated graphically or, or, or vividly. And so what Paul is saying is that, that I told the story of Jesus' crucifixion so graphically, so vividly, so clearly, it was, is, it was as if you had seen it with your own very eyes. 
But something, rather someone, had bewitched them, cast a spell over them, tricked them, got them to believe a lie, to buy into something that wasn't true. And so Paul continues, picking up in verse two, he says this. He says, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Christ was clearly portrayed to you. Christ crucified was clearly portrayed to you. You've been witched. I want to ask just one question, guys. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain, So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing what you heard? I want to go back for a second to verse 3 because this is the heart of, of Paul's problem with what is happening in Galatia. He says again, after beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Flesh is just another word for effort. So Paul says, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh, by by means of your own effort, by means of your own performance? See, what Paul is saying, he's saying, look, you you received the Spirit, you received God, you were saved from the consequences of your sin by your faith in Jesus, by your belief in what he'd done. You started with faith in Jesus by relying on Jesus, but now what's happening is you're relying on yourself? Really? Really? You started with Jesus as your Savior, but, but now in, in, instead of Jesus being your Savior, your, your own efforts have become this, this functional Savior in your life. You say it's Jesus that saves, but really you're looking to some other thing to save. Now here's the thing. If this can happen to them, it certainly can happen to us, and I think it does. I think we do the exact same thing all the, all the time. We start with Jesus, we rely on Jesus, and then somewhere along the line, we start to rely on something or someone else. Often it's our own self. We start with Jesus, and then somewhere along the line, it's something else. Now, now here's a question. Here's where I want to connect what Paul is saying to the Galatians to, to what I think the Spirit is saying to us through his words tonight. I want to ask, how does that happen How do you go from starting with Jesus to relying on someone or something? How do you go from starting with Jesus to looking to someone else? Now, of course, it's not a simple answer, right? I I, I know that that, I I ask it as if it's a simple one thing, right? It's not a simple answer. There's probably a lot of different things that we could say, but but here's something that I've been thinking about. It's it's especially true, I think, in my own life. In in, in my experience working with college students, I think it's something that, that I see come up over and over and over again. How do we go from starting with Jesus to looking to other things? And it's this, I think we start coasting. We start coasting in our relationship with God. Now, I think I'm also thinking about coasting because I saw an article the other day that asked a question, is coasting downhill dangerous? A short answer, if you're this guy, of course, (laughs) right? But who doesn't love to throw the car into neutral and go downhill, yeah? All right, maybe it's just me. You didn't laugh at that. Um, But here's the thing. So I read this article, right? I don't know why that sucked me in. Uh, Maybe it was just the the Range Rover, but or maybe that's the Land Rover. I don't know. I drive a pilot. Anyway, so I read the article, right? And, and here's the gist. Why is, it, why is it dangerous to coast downhill in a vehicle? 
Well, the mechanics of it are this, that when you coast, when you throw your car into neutral, you disable your accelerator. Makes sense, right? When I put my car in neutral and I hit the gas pedal, I can't go forward or backwards. Okay, sure. But also, when you throw your car into neutral, your engine, it loses connection to the drivetrain, which means it disables the power steering. So you can still steer, right? But, but when you lose power steering, it's a lot harder to steer. And so the logic goes that, that if you've lost connection with your accelerator, your gas pedal doesn't work, and your steering isn't as good when we coast, we potentially put ourselves in danger and other people if a hazard happens to pop out, deer runs into the road, some other crazy thing happens, we put ourselves and others in danger because we don't have a gas pedal and our steering kind of sucks. That's the article. Now, I'm not here to talk to you. You don't want to hear me talk to you anymore about driving, right? I'm not here to talk about driving and coasting down a hill, but I am here to talk to you about God. And here's the thing. Just like coasting down hill is dangerous in a car, So too is it dangerous. The Bible teaches this over and over and over. So too is it dangerous when you and I start coasting in our relationship with Jesus. When you and I start coasting in our relationship with God, it's actually dangerous. Now, if that's true, then what does it mean? We've got to ask that question, right? If you're telling me, Kyle, that that something that, that, that happens a lot, if it's dangerous, then what does that mean? Well, again, I think coasting with God, I think it means a lot of different things depending on who you are. But I think for some of us, for some of us, coasting in our relationship with Jesus, it means being passive about sin. And, and, and by that, I, I just mean that, that we stop living the way that God wants us to live. When we're passive about sin, we, we kind of say, you know, sin's not that big of a deal. And, and we, we, we kind of start thinking that we know better than God. And so I'm going to live the way that I want to live, not the way that God wants me to live. But I think for others of us, coasting looks like we're kind of know-it-alls. We've heard it. We know it. I've been there. I've done that. And to be honest, I'm just kind of bored. Maybe Maybe you're bored right now at Veritas. Maybe you're bored at your small group. Maybe you're bored with church. Maybe if you're really honest, you're kind of bored with Jesus. You've heard it all. You've grown up around it. You're just bored. Now, here's a little sidebar to that. This, this idea that we get bored because we hear it over and over and over. You know, one of the things that you notice when you read the, the Gospels in particular, the, the biographies of Jesus, is that Jesus had to talk to his friends. He had to talk to people all the time. He had to say things over and over and over. It wasn't like he just said it one time and everyone gets it, boom, and my life's changed. Now, Jesus' closest friends, dudes that he, he lived with for years, spent tons of time with. He had to say things over and over and over. And if that's true for them, what makes us think that we're any different? That we don't need to hear things over and over, that we don't need to hear simple truths sometime over and over, simple truths that can radically change our lives. What makes us think that we don't need to sing songs that we already know, songs that seem repetitive, songs that we don't like because we want something new, because new is, well, new is what we all want. What makes us think that we're any different? I don't know, just a thought. But I think another, another thing, another way that we see coasting pop up, and this is probably more true for, for all of us, I think when we're coasting in our relationship with God, what it really means is that we're just kind of going through the motions. When, when we coast in our relationship with Jesus, we, we're, we're just going through the motions. We're not really growing. We're not, you, you kind of step back and you look at your life and, and you don't really see any growth. You don't see any change. You're not really fighting sin. You're kind of just blah, right? Like you, you're plateaued. Not necessarily going back, but you're certainly not going forward. It's just kind of there. Christine Whelan, she's a professor 
uh, she says this. She says, coasting is existing, not thriving. Coasting is existing, not thriving. Now, she's not talking about God, but, but I think that is exactly right. I think it's exactly right when we think about God, that when we coast in our relationship with God, we are existing, not thriving. See, when we coast in our relationship with God, over time what happens is that, that we start to drift further and further away, further and further away from God's purposes for our lives, further and further away from, from what God says is best for us, further and further away from, from who God created us to be. And of course, further and further away from him. See, coasting is existing. It's not thriving. When you're coasting in your relationship with Jesus, you're not living the way that God created you to live. And again, if that's true, then I think we've got to wrestle with it, right? We've got to ask ourselves. We've got to ask honestly, are we coasting right now? So I want you to just ask yourself. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say anything out loud. Please don't. That would be weird. But, but think about that. It's just you and God right now in the privacy of your own heart. Are, are you coasting in your relationship with Jesus? Be honest. Are you just going through the motions? Have you kind of heard it all? Are you just a little bored? Have you gotten kind of lazy when it comes to fighting against sin? Believing that God knows what's best for you. Are you coasting right now? See, when we coast, what happens is that we stop relying on Jesus. We do what the Galatians started doing. We, we, we start with Jesus, but we turn to other things, other people. And those things, those, those people, what happens is they become, what I said earlier, they become functional saviors in our lives. We might say that we worship Jesus, but if you take an honest assessment, you can see that clearly we're worshiping other things. What are some of those things? I think we could say a lot. But again, in my experience personally and in, in working with college students, I think a, a few different things that I see us, we start with Jesus, but we end up worshiping other things. Those things being comfort. I mean, if we're really honest, who of us in here, I mean, I think we're all a little bit like this, right? What we think we need most in life, what we think will make us happiest, what we think will bring us the most satisfaction, in one way or another, it's comfort. We don't like pain. We don't like struggle. We don't like hardship. We, we want ease, right? We want the path of least resistance. So, of course, we want comfort. And what happens when we don't get it? What happens when, when comfort becomes a functional savior and we don't get it? What happens when, when life doesn't quite go the way that we wanted it to or the way that we thought it would? What, what happens? We get angry, don't we? We get bitter. We get bitter at God. We get bitter at, at other people. We get bitter at our circumstances. Is that you? I mean, uh, maybe there's a, a circumstance in your life right now. Maybe you're going through something. In a room this size, I'm sure some of us are going through something really hard. And, and when that happens, are, are we bitter? Are, are we angry? Angry at God, angry at people? This isn't going the way that I wanted it to go, and so I'm just mad. I think to an extent, that's a lot of us, all of us, probably one way or another. But, but I'll say this, if, if that's you, it might be that comfort has become a functional saving in your life. You started with Jesus, but now what you're really worshiping, the reason you're so angry, the reason why you're so bitter, you're frustrated, is because comfort is a functional savior. 
Or how about approval? I, I, I talked about approval a few weeks ago, and I'm coming back to it because it's so true. It's so true in my own life. I worship approval. I, I came across a quote from Madonna the other day. It's great. I want to read it. It says this. She says, all of my will, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that will all, that's always pushing me. It's pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. Even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove it. I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. You see, when approval becomes a functional savior in our life, what happens when we don't get it? Well, I think she names it, right? Fear. Feelings of inadequacy, insecurity. When, when, when we worship approval and we don't get it, we get afraid. When we worship approval and we don't get it, we feel insecure. When we worship approval and we don't get it, we feel incredibly inadequate. Or also control, right? I think control's a, a, a really big one, yeah? When we coast, we drift further and further away from trusting God's plan, that God actually knows what's best for us, and, and instead we start seizing tr control for ourselves, right? We, we start grasping for control, starting to take control of our own lives. And when we don't get control, or when life feels like it's out of control, what do we do? We panic. Anxiety. Worry. Some of you are, are graduations looming, I don't know what I'm going to do, but we've drifted from God, and so we're panicked, anxious, worrying, struggling to trust God, his plan, because we want control for ourselves. And then, of course, I think what we already said, what, what the Galatians were struggling with is, is performance. I think that's another thing that we often do, or, or, or relying on ourselves. It makes me think of a movie. It's an old movie. And when I say old, I mean decades and decades and decades. But it's about two runners, two Olympic runners. And, and there's a point where one of them is talking about his passion for running. And this is what he says. He says, the reason that I run, the reason why I have such a burning desire to run is he says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. I've got 10 seconds. That race, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you, you've got to justify your existence? Like you've got to work and work and work. You've got, to, you've got to prove to people. You've got to prove to God. You've got to prove to others. Maybe you have to prove to yourself that, that, that you're enough, that, that you're worthy of love, that you're worthy of acceptance, that you're worthy of approval. See, again, I think that's something that we all struggle with. But, but what I want to say is if that's true, then I think performance might be, have become a functional savior in your life. And similarly, when we don't perform, when we don't meet other people's expectations or when we don't meet our own expectations or when we fail, what happens? How do, what, what happens? Shame. We start to feel shame. When I, when I fail, when performance is a functional savior in my life and I fail, what I feel is shame. Now, my point in saying all this, and we can keep going, but my point in saying all this is that when we coast, what we start doing, we stop seeing Jesus for who he really is and we start thinking that all Jesus really wants from us is for us to justify our place on his team. 
When you and I coast, that's why coasting is dangerous. When you and I coast with our relationship with God, we stop seeing Jesus for who he really is. We start to believe this lie. We start to think the wrong thing. We're bewitched ourselves. We're tricked into thinking that all Jesus really wants from us is to justify our existence, to justify being on his team makes me think of a, uh, a story that I love so much in the Old Testament, kind of the earlier parts of the Bible. It's about a king named David. You might be familiar with King David and his really good friend, Jonathan. Jonathan has a son. The thing with the son, though, is that uh, from age five on, he was crippled in both feet. So, so Jonathan's son, he's crippled in both feet. He can't help himself. Uh, couldn't take care of himself, couldn't walk. Eventually, he becomes very poor, very destitute. And, and as the story goes, music team, you guys can come up wherever you are. As the story goes, this son, his dad eventually dies. Jonathan dies. So you're in the story, and, and, and you've got this crippled son, crippled in two feet, can't take care of himself. He's poor. And the only person in his life that could provide for him safety, security, food. He dies. And, and so as you can imagine, he's, he's afraid what's going to happen to me. And then, and then one day in the story, he, he gets summoned to the palace by the king. Now, usually if you're summoned to the palace by the king, it's not good news. And so as you can imagine, this son is afraid. What, what's the king going to say? What's, what's the king going to do? What's going to happen? But when he gets there and he's before the king, this is what the king says to him. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I've brought you here to let you know that from now on, from now on, the king says, you will always have a seat at my table. From now on, you will always have a privileged seat at the king's table. You will eat with me. You see, in his grace and mercy, this king, he brought this crippled son this, this poor son, he brought him to his table. That son didn't get over his condition. He didn't clean himself up. He didn't magically learn how to walk. He didn't get a bunch of money. No, he never got over it, and yet the king invites him to the table. He invites him to the table, and he says, you will always eat with me. You will always eat with the king. And the reason why I love that story so much is because that is the picture. It's a beautiful picture of what King Jesus, Jesus the King, is offering every single one of us here tonight. He's offering us a seat at his table. By his grace and his mercy, King Jesus is offering, he's welcoming us to eat with him forever. And he's saying to us, he's saying, don't be tricked. Don't be fooled. You can't earn it. Let's not be fooled. Let's not be tricked into thinking that sitting at the king's table is anything that you and I can earn. We can't. It is ours by grace and grace alone. You see, there is nothing. There is nothing that you can do to add what Jesus has already done for you. And what Jesus has already done for you, it's everything that you could possibly need. It's everything that you could possibly want. It's everything you were created for. We're going to end our time tonight. We're going to end a little differently. We're going to spend a little bit of time reflecting 
um, reflecting and praying. And, and so I'm going to invite you, if you want to close your eyes, bow your heads, I'm just going to ask a few questions and just give you some space to kind of process, process these things, process these ideas, process this passage. It's just you and God having a conversation. So what are the ways? Maybe I'll say it like this. Jesus, help us to see the ways that we're coasting. What are the ways that if you're really honest right now, that you're coasting in your relationship with Jesus? The ways that you're passive towards your sin? The ways that that you're tempted to think that you have heard this before, you've been there, you've done that. What are the ways that you're just going through the motions? What are the ways that you're coasting right now in your relationship with Jesus? Tell him. this, what, what, what are the functional saviors in your life? Maybe if you're really honest, you started with Jesus, wherever that was, whenever that was, however long ago that was. Like the Galatians, you're all in. I want that. Yes, Jesus. But somewhere along the lines, stopped relying on Jesus and started relying on something, someone else. What's that something? What's, who's that someone? What, what is it right now in your life, this point in the semester, this point in the year? What are you looking to? What are you relying on for happiness? What are you relying on for satisfaction? That, that you're living as if a spell was cast over you. You're, you're blinded from seeing the beauty of who King Jesus is because that lie seems really good. Whatever that promise is that's being told to us, whatever that lie that's, that's tempting us, whatever that thing is that's tricking us, what, what is it? us to see that that none of these saviors, none of these functional saviors in our lives, none of these things are enough. None of these things will give us the happiness that you created us for. None of these things, none of these things, Jesus, are enough. Only you are. Jesus, only you are enough. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, make sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow us on social media at Veritas Como. Thanks again for listening.